This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. I'm here today with Carter Raff of the Raff Distillery on Treasure Island in San Francisco, California. Carter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, it's, well, thanks for showing me around your place. It's an incredible spot. So tell me a little bit about the Raft Distillery. Where are we? What is this space? What are you building here? So we're located on Treasure Island, which is an island that's uh, half man-made and half natural. The natural side is called Yerba Buena Island. And we're located in the middle of the Bay Bridge, and we're, we're technically San Francisco. We have San Francisco address, so we're part of San Francisco. And the Treasure Island part was built by the... Uh, Military, or sorry, mm-hmm. not military, sorry, it was built by the city of San Francisco for the 1916 Golden Gate Expedition, which was a World's Fair. Oh, okay. Well, very cool. And this building has kind of an interesting history that you're located in. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? It's sure. so, so fascinating. So we're actually located in the old Navy brig, the Navy prison. So huh. after the 19... Actually, sorry, it was not 1916. It was 1935 they built the island, and in 36 they had the Golden Gate Expedition and then in 1941, the military took it over and became a Navy base until 1997. Oh, okay. So we're in the old Navy prison, the old Navy brig, where they used to house their prisoners. Very cool. How long have you been open out here? So I've been around since about 2011. Oh, okay. And my first, first products I launched in October 2012. Oh, wow. And we didn't really start making sales until around May, June of last year. So we're still mm-hmm. about a year and a half old as far as sales. Cool. Let's talk about that. What kind of products do you make then? What does the Raft Distillery uh, produce right now? So I'm kind of one of those universal distillers where I've been distilling so long, I've pretty much made everything. So uh-huh. I came out with products that I really wanted to showcase what alcohol good spirits could be. So the first products I came out with were Bummer and Lazarus Gin. Oh, interesting. And Emperor Norton Absinthe. I've been in alcohol a long time, so I actually started researching Absinthe back in 1985. I heard... I, I was going to say, it, Absinthe is such an interesting thing to launch label up. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the, it's not a, I mean, it's, it's not widely popular. It's not something, uh, you see everywhere. Uh, what made you kind of go with Absinthe as one of your first spirits? So like, like I was saying in 1985, I heard about it in a movie mm-hmm. and it, you know, I was in alcohol. So I was yeah. very fascinated by the story and the, the legend behind Absinthe. And when I finally decided to, start distilling 15 years ago, I, you know, this is the first thing I made. And then when I decided to open a professional distillery, that's the first thing I wanted to make. So <laughs> I made Emperor Norton Absinthe. It's a true traditional French Absinthe. Oh, uh, what kind of make, what, what, what makes it a true traditional so French Absinthe? So there's no law in the U.S. of what Absinthe should be. Mm-hmm. If it has wormwood in it and anise seed and flavor characteristics, it can be called an Absinthe. Okay. But there's no laws about what a true traditional Absinthe is or not. But they did re-legalize Absinthe in the U.S. in 2007. Okay. So a real Absinthe should be brandy-based. So mm-hmm. the base alcohol that you make your product from should be made out of grapes. I okay. use 100% California grapes. Oh, really? Yeah. And then grand wormwood, anise uh-huh. seed, and fennel seed. And then you distill that over, and then you naturally color it to get that green color with Roman wormwood, hyssop, and lemon balm. Whoa. So that's what a traditional absinthe is. Now, there's about eight other herbs that you can put in there Mm -hmm. that were traditional to the time period from the major producers back then. But I would say about 90% of the absinthe in the world today is not made correctly. It has all the right stuff in there. You know, the wormwood, since it got re-legalized, which is what they thought made you hallucinate. 
But then people put stuff in there like Star Anise. Star Anise mm-hmm. should never be an absent. It was not in there originally. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. It, I guess people just put it in there because of the flavor. It well, kind of if you ever taste an absent that tastes like heavy black licorice, right. more than likely it's been made with Star Anise. So, oh. so the traditional ritual where you put uh, an ounce in a glass of mm-hmm. absinthe, slotted spoon on top, sugar cube, and then you slowly drip three to four parts ice-cold water to dissolve that sugar yeah. and make the absinthe go from that beautiful green to the milky white. That's called the louche. Okay. So people use star anise because star anise is so heavy in essential oils that you get a heavy, thick, solid, white, opaque louche. Yeah, I've seen that, but you're right. But they're making now a product based on vision on what it looks like. I'd rather have it look the way it looked back then and taste like mine does. Wow, very cool. And how do you get that green color? So it, it, it's the wormwood that gets the so green it's, color. So it's the Roman it, wormwood. So Roman the grand wormwood. wormwood is distilled over, mm-hmm. and then you color with Roman wormwood, hyssop, and lemon balm. And what happens is that high-proof alcohol is actually leaching the chlorophyll out of that plant material to create the green color. Oh, wow. Yeah. And both my wormwoods, my Roman wormwood and my grand wormwood, I personally buy and import from an herbery 30 miles outside Pontalier, France. Oh, wow. So, so Pontalier was actually the home of absinthe. It was invented and uh, produced five miles over the border in Switzerland. Okay. But when it became such a huge product, they actually built all the factories right there in Pontalier because they have a river and they can do, you know, water shipments because this was obviously the 1800s. How did you find them? How, how did you travel out there to... No, I wish. I've been yeah. to France, but not, not in the countryside just leads through the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I've been making absinthe for 15 years. Yeah. So, Grand <laughs> Let's Wor- not do our math on when it was legalized. <laughs> yeah. So Grand Wormwood is one of those plants that that's why it was illegalized. They thought it made you hallucinate. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify. I saw Moulin Rouge. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> none of that's true. Right. It was, okay. it was all just deployed by the wine industry in the late 1800s oh, in really? France. Yeah. Because absinthe was taking a market share away from them. Okay. And they didn't like that. So they started a smear campaign. That's all it was. But – with the wormwood, yeah. Grand Wormwood was never illegalized in the U.S. And actually, absinthe technically was never illegal here. It was just a statute by the government saying we wouldn't accept anything with wormwood in it as far as spirits. Okay. But um, – You can have it. You can grow it. You, you can, can grow it. it yeah. You can buy it at every herbary. <laughs> right. Grand Wormwood is actually used in herbal medicine. has been used for thousands of years. Okay. So they use it as digestive, you know, upset stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is the Roman Wormwood. Roman Wormwood – is only grown for coloring absinthe. That's it. So that's why I had to go to France, and I figured I'll get both wormwoods there from the same place just because I'm already buying and importing it. Yeah. Because Roman wormwood's only grown for coloring absinthe. So Okay. I mean, yeah. like, when I was making it myself, the, the prices even back, you know, 15 years ago were like 30 bucks an ounce. Mm. It's like, so I just, you know, you could buy the yeah. seeds. So I bought, I bought little... Little seedling plants from Canada of Roman wormwood planted yeah. in my front yard and made my own. Whoa, <laughs> that's awesome! Yeah, it was. It's like a little. It's like a weed, so it grows pretty uh-huh. pretty quickly, and you know, very cool. It was easier than cheaper than buying thirty bucks an ounce. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, tell me about your gin a little bit, then. <laughs> Thanks for the history lesson on absinthe. Yeah. That's fascinating. And what, what kind of gin do you produce? Then? So, what are uh, its anything technically over ninety proof is considered a dry gin. So, mine mm-hmm. is not a London dry, but it's a it's a dry gin. Okay. And my gin also is I make it from a hundred percent California grapes. Okay. So uh, the, the the ethanol made from grapes is is more it gives an interesting mouthfeel, more of a creaminess. So I, see. I want my products to be unique. So yeah. I went with a brandy based my my gin yeah, is cause usually you think of gin you think of like a uh, grain being yeah the, uh, neutral grain neutral spirits spirit, right. you know wheat corn whatever but yeah, yeah you kind of get that corny taste you know mm-hmm. I mean if you don't know what's there you won't taste it but someone like me you can kind of taste what the base is yeah so I wanted my gin to be uh, more unique 
Mm-hmm. So my, my gin is more citrusy and floral. It's not so heavy on the juniper. Okay. So when you smell it, I, my gin actually has a bouquet. Most, most gins don't. They, ha- they either smell like, you know, ethanol, you know, which yeah. people equate to rubbing alcohol, which, even though it's different, and, or, you know, heavy juniper flavor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you want heavy juniper, they make lots of stuff already. Sure. But I wanted something that was totally different. So. Yeah. Very interesting. So tell me about the names of your spirits, uh, Bummer and Lazarus and... Uh, Emperor Norton. And Emperor Norton. And th- those, have, uh, those have a basis in San Francisco history. Uh, yeah. So tell me about that a little bit? Sure. So I'm, I'm fifth generation San Franciscan. Okay. And I originally started out, I wanted to bring some history because I'm kind of an unofficial historian kind of <laughs> guy. And so I named all my products off San Francisco history. Oh. So Bummer and Lazarus Gin is named after Bummer and Lazarus, two real stray dogs yeah. that lived in San Francisco in the late 1800s. They were very famous. Okay. I mean, you know, back then they didn't have AP Wire News. Yeah. So writers would sit outside the bars these dogs would beg at and write about their shenanigans you know they'd stop a horse down the street that was out of control or chase a you know a well-to-do man or something yeah but bummer rescued lazarus from a fight after that they never separated but they were so good at catching and killing rats that san francisco actually passed a separate law to protect them from the dog catchers because really in major cities back then Stray dogs would outnumber humans two to one. Okay. So they would kill strays on sight. But Bummer and Lazarus were so good at catching and killing rats that San Francisco revered them. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were well, well-loved dogs. Mm-hmm. When Lazarus died, 30,000 people showed up at the funeral. No way. When Bummer died, Mark Twain wrote the eulogy. Mark Twain was a young writer at the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez. That's awesome. And Emperor Norton, what... Uh so Emperor Norton is probably our most famous character. Most people don't know about him, but these days uh, he's gotten a lot of publicity uh, mm-hmm. because of the new Bay Bridge. Okay. So Emperor Norton was a businessman who lived in San Francisco in the middle 1800s. Yeah. And he invested in rice because he thought there was going to be a shortage. Okay. And there was. But the problem is the day his ship came in, all the other ships came in, and he lost his fortune. Oh, no. So he left San Francisco, came back around 10 years later, and was kind of crazy. He hmm. wore a half-Confederate, half-Union Civil War uniform, <laughs> top hat and a feather, and went around making government proclamations. He called himself Emperor Norton the First yeah. of the United States and Protector of Mexico. <laughs> he actually had correspondence with Abraham Lincoln. They would entertain him and the president of the Confederacy trying to get them to resolve their issues. And there, okay. there's a lot of fake articles and proclamations made by Emperor Norton that were yeah. out there because, you know, just as today, you know, newspaper writers starved for stories would create their own fiction. Sure. And there's a few letters from Abraham Lincoln that were fake, but there were a few mm-hmm. from his secretary and okay. from Abraham Lincoln himself. And he, you know, he made up his own money. People would yeah. feed him. Every <laughs> opera opening or every symphony opening would have a seat reserved for Emperor mm-hmm. Norton. And he was just kind of a, I mean, he did have a residence, but it wasn't a standard. You know, it's not like he was there all the time. Sure. He was he was kind of homeless and kind of crazy. Yeah. And, you know, some people say, well, how dare you say that about Emperor Norton? Because this city really loves him. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, he was crazy. He, <laughs> sure. But there's nothing but wrong with there's that. There's nothing wrong with that. Everyone, yeah. The funny part there's is no he, he was... <laughs> He made lots of articulate arguments, believe it mm-hmm. or not. He was very well-spoken. He actually was in contact and go up to Sacramento on the state's dime and talk to the representatives, not in front of the whole California Assembly, sure. but, you know, individual, he'd know the congressman. And no, it was really very interesting that so many people would humor this guy. They yeah. loved him for who he was. They didn't say, oh, this guy's got to be in jail because he's crazy. He thinks he's the emperor. No, they loved him for who he was. It was very interesting that so many people just took him at face value. 
Huh. They didn't question him. They didn't go, sure. you know, and we, we can't listen to you. I, I, you know, I'm an assemblyman. I got work to do. They didn't do that. They yeah. they paid attention to him. It was very, very interesting. interesting. <laughs> His most famous thing and what is depicted on my Emperor Norton absinthe bottle is he actually proposed the Bay Bridge and the Transbay Tunnel 30 years before they were ever conceived. Oh, really? So too, he <laughs> said there should be a bridge between San Francisco and Oakland and a tunnel mm-hmm. going under the bay. Oh. Yeah. Whoa, so good idea. Yeah, so we tried to get yeah. the the new span of the Bay Bridge renamed mm-hmm. the Emperor Norton Bridge. <laughs> it, we had a petition in 2012, 2013. Okay. Uh, didn't go through. We actually now have – I'm not a part of it. I do donate some product, but we do have a nonprofit organization working to get that bridge renamed. Really? Because even – I mean, For people not in San Francisco, what is the name of the uh, – so, like so the Bay Bridge, the new, span. Uh, the, the new span that goes between Oakland and Treasure Island mm-hmm. is Willie Brown – Memorial Bridge, because okay. Willie Brown was mayor of San Francisco and I believe Oakland at one point, or he at least worked in Oakland. Mm. And the problem is even Willie Brown said he didn't care if they named the new Bay Bridge after him. Yeah. And U.S. tradition is not to name a monument after someone is still, still alive. alive right. It's and usually someone is if dead. If you ask so, Willie Brown right now, he would definitely tell you he's still alive. Yes. Uh, so they, they really uh, they really missed the mark on that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, so <laughs> thanks for the history. That, that's that's really awesome. Um, your products are are unique, and the Thank stories you. behind them definitely are too. <laughs> what what kind of made you want to get into distilling? Into distilling, then. So um, you have a history in winemaking. Yeah. So back um, in the '90s, I was making wine at college. Yeah. And the natural progression is just to move to distilling. Okay. Not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with wine, but you know, wine is wine. You know, sure. distilling is distilling, and you know, I'm sure there's something after that I'll probably be doing too. Just kind of a natural progression. I started yeah. researching distillation in like '93. Okay. Um, never really tried it. Tried it once when I was living in a small apartment in Hollywood in '97, and that <laughs> didn't really work out. And then when I moved back to San Francisco, I started distilling here. Oh, okay. Got is and for you, how was the process different than versus distilling versus winemaking? It's. Do you still enjoy winemaking? Oh yeah. Or are you now? I do. I don't yeah. have much time for it, right. so I'm hardly making any wine these days. Okay. Uh, I mean, my the business is you know 18 hours a day every sure. day because I'm literally aside from outside sales and a national sales manager, I'm the whole company. So yeah. I handle production, I handle marketing. I mean, I handle everything. You know, and PR. Business, <laughs> yeah, yeah, PR, everything right. other than outside sales. So mm-hmm. winemaking is not easy, but distilling is. I can't say it's hard, but you have to start with winemaking, whether you're mm-hmm. making beer for making whiskey or you're making – it's all fermentation and controlling right. temperatures and knowing what yeast and what product to put in there. So it's it's harder than wine because you got to – there's an extra step after making the wine because yep. remember, both my products that I currently have out are made from 100% California grapes. That's so, true. So you, you start with winemaking. You start yeah. with winemaking. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I don't make my – I don't wine make my own products. Mm. My, my brandy base that I use for my absinthe and my gin – I use it for mouthfeel. Okay. So anything that has a flavor component, I actually make from scratch. But the the brandy base that I use, because I don't want to make 10,000 gallons of wine every month, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, I pre-buy my uh, my brandy base, mm-hmm. and but I do redistill that and okay. carbon filter to get it neutral. It's it's yep. basically I'm starting out with a high-proof vodka. That's but, what neutral neutral brandy is. So yeah, that, that background then must have helped you, though, be able to find the right wine base then because you know exactly what you're looking for and how it's fermented. Yes. So, yeah. So how did you learn to distill then? Was it self-taught? Did you take classes? Did you no, reach out to other distillers? There really wasn't um, classes back then unless you're ta- yeah. you were taking a, a professional course, which you know costs even these days thousands and thousands of dollars. So yeah. I've always been kind of a self-taught kind of person. So mm-hmm. I mean, just read, read, read. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. Okay. We barely had computers. So, mm-hmm. you know, read books. I mean, almost every winemaking 
or beer making book I bought back then had like, you know, a paragraph or two on distilling. Okay. So yeah, just read about it. Like I said, in, in 97, when I tried it in Hollywood, nothing came over the still. And I thought just like everyone else, you'd blow yourself up or <laughs> right. you'd make yourself go blind. So I kind of just didn't do it, you know? Okay. So yeah, you just kind of, you know, I let it set in for another three years and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of my brain kind of worked on, oh, why this does this and why that does that based on more reading. And yeah, so I finally got a grasp of it. And you tried it and you didn't go blind. It's like, oh, no. wait a second. <laughs> the stories were all wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you can blow yourself up sure. and you can make yourself Obviously. go blind. Most of the time, those are both if you're doing something seriously wrong on mm-hmm. purpose. A lot of those urban legends came from prohibition times where they were making a corn mash, you know, true moonshine. Moonshine, by the way, is only 100% corn whiskey. Nothing else is called moonshine. Okay. I mean, they may call it that they because may. there's no standard of what it is, mm-hmm. but really, moonshine is really only 100% corn whiskey. Okay. And it's not supposed to be good. It's supposed to get you drunk <laughs> for cheap. That's sure. it. It tastes terrible. <laughs> so if you feel you're still too high yep. with corn mash and you've got corn in there, it could plug the column and then you've got a powder keg okay. literally that can explode. Yep. And uh, the blindness really, there is methanol in mm-hmm. all spirits, including wine. There's actually more methanol in wine naturally really? than because methanol is a byproduct of fermentation. Mm-hmm. You know, basically right. fermentation is yeast, which is a microorganism, eats sugar, mm-hmm. and what it craps out is carbon dioxide and water. But of course, there's phenols and different and carbon dioxide and alcohol, not water. Yeah. Say it again. It craps out carbon dioxide and ethanol. Ethanol. Yeah. I thought, I thought I think you might have said water. Oh, did I? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so sorry. Wanted, so yeast yeah. eats sugar and yep. what it craps out is carbon dioxide and ethanol. Okay. But there's also other things that come out as well. So you get a little uh, uh, methanol. Okay. But there's more methanol naturally in wine than in yeah. distillates. Whoa. But, you know, going blind really came from prohibition times where nefarious mm-hmm. people who weren't honest and care if they killed people would cut it with radiator fluid or okay. whatever they could. Just, you know, n- you know, wood alcohol, which mm-hmm. wood alcohol is all methanol and you don't want to drink that. Oh, God. That'll so, kill you, make you go blind instantly. Yeah. Wow. So speaking, so you're somebody who does like to use their hands for things, um, teach yourself. And that carries through on your amazing still that you have. Oh, thank you. In your production space. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Now, you handmade it yourself, didn't you? Yeah, so I've been a lifelong you know, metal worker and I pretty much build everything. I mean, <laughs> whether it's furniture in my house or whatnot. So yeah. when it comes time to open a distillery, I could either spend half a million dollars on this equipment or build sure. it myself for pennies. Okay. So I built my 220-gallon still. I built my uh, quarter-scale five-gallon test still. I built uh, yeah. the entire bottling line from scratch. There's Whoa. actually not a single piece of equipment that's not been built from scratch or modified by me f- for what I use to make my product. Uh, aside from our labeler machine, I, don't, I didn't make that. But okay. uh, I mean, even pump heads on pumps, I made from scratch. So, And how did you, how did you learn how to make a still? Well, what, did, did you read specifications? <laughs> yeah, you know, I read books. You know, at, you know, I mean, like I said, I started researching distillation in 93, so my brain's yeah. been working on that the entire time. Okay. Um, gotcha. So I've been building stills for over 15 years. And when it came time to build the big one, build the big still, I did all the calculations, and then I did consult the thermodynamic engineer to be able to check my math to make sure okay. everything was good, and it was. Um, a lot of guys just throw together stills these days. They don't worry about output or heat input and, you know, mm-hmm. how much heat you have to take away with the condenser. And, you know, they just build stuff because it looks like what should be done. And, you know, but I did all right. the math. It looks I like did. a still. So it's yeah, a, yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah, I mean, just mechanics, you know, mm-hmm. mechanical engineering is just, to me, it's it just comes naturally to me. That's simple. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So your still actually has copper on the inside for all yes. the beneficial things that copper does to alcohol dis- distillation. Yeah. But then you use 
stainless steel. Stainless steel on the outside. Yeah. Okay. And was that cost and also like the, heat efficiency and heat transfer? Not or just the heat efficiency is quite a bit different, but in terms of real world, it doesn't make too much difference. Yeah. Well, I believe copper is 30 times more efficient at holding in heat. Okay. So like, let's say you take a, you know, piece of metal that's the same size in copper and stainless, and you both heat them up to a certain temperature, mm-hmm. the copper is going to hold the heat way longer. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's more efficient, I guess, in that regard. Um, and you, like you said, you absolutely need copper in a still. It helps mm-hmm. pull out some of the sulfites. But when it comes to working with copper, yeah. it is a real pain okay. to weld. It is really? super hard. you got to have a lot of heat. It just sucks the heat away. Oh, okay. So these big stills that are you know hundreds of thousands of dollars that yep. are made out of copper – it's really for looks on the outside. You mm-hmm. need the copper in the inside. So I use stainless because it's super easy to weld. Yeah. And it's way, way cheaper. As you know, copper is super expensive. Yeah, super expensive. So why open up a distillery in San Francisco then? I, mean, I know you're a fifth generation here, but you know, I, I speak to a lot of people who have urban distilleries and they talk about, you know, sometimes it can be difficult to find a, a, a location, but you know, the benefit is that they're near their family or they, uh, you know, are near where, People can come by and, and see see their distilleries, see what they make. Uh, what kind of calculations did, went into it for you? Because obviously it'd be easier to go to, you know, the country somewhere where you have 3,000 acres and you can build whatever you want. No one's going to bother you. What, what were kind of your calculations for doing it here in the city? Um, cost is definitely a factor in San Francisco. I mean, right yeah. now we have 3% vacancy. <laughs> I mean, 3%, uh, yeah, 3% vacancy. vacancy. I mean, there's, yeah. there's just nothing to rent. And it's just San Francisco. I mean, I grew up yeah. here. It's... It's the city. I mean, I wouldn't want to do it anywhere else, you know. I mean, if I already owned a couple thousand acres up in Sonoma, that'd be different, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, I went to Sonoma State University, so, you know, my love is also up there. Yeah. But it's San Francisco. I mean, it says San Francisco on the label. I mean, when you think of major cities, you think of Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Paris, and that's, you know, yeah. London and, you know, a few others. But, you know, San Francisco is a main – plus it's the cocktail capital of the world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just being able to put that on, so then you can yeah. 100% legitimately say we're a San Francisco yeah. company. San Made Francisco. in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So were there any um, difficulties you had to overcome then to get it opened here? So, or was it a pretty easy process? Was the city easy to work with? It uh, permitting? Yes and no. So I mean, it's a notorious, so San Francisco is not, to build anything here is it's very you, hard. You start with difficult and yes. move up from there. So understanding So that. normally it's pretty difficult. I have friends mm-hmm. who, vote, who are opening distilleries right now in San Francisco and- okay. It's it's kind of a nightmare because you gotta you have to coordinate two different government agencies, the TTB and the ABC, and then the city, city planners, fire inspector. I mean, you Mm -hmm. gotta coordinate like ten different organizations, and it's a nightmare. But we're located on Treasure Island, which is San Francisco owned. They got turned got turned over to San Francisco in 1997, but it's still technically federal land. Oh, okay. So technically, we didn't need an ABC license. But mm. the ABC said, you know, if you, you know, we if you don't want a headache from us, yep. not that we're going to give you one, but just get your permit. And so, okay. obviously, you know, it, it, it's easier to have the ABC permit. But we're technically still federal land. Gotcha. So all we would have technically needed is our DSP, Distilled Spirits mm-hmm. Plant, permit from the TTB. So it was a little 
a little easier here because we're in an old Navy prison, a brig yeah. that's going to be torn down because they're going to redevelop Treasure Island at some point. We're going to get kicked out of here, so oh, I'll need to go buy a building in San Francisco. <laughs> okay. Uh, I like to buy just because that way, you know, when I do fancy build-outs and stuff, people yeah. can't say, oh, no, you got to leave. <laughs> this is not the sort of thing that you can just pick up and move yeah, exactly. every two years when the rent gets jacked exactly. up or something. Yeah. So, and when I build the new distillery, mm-hmm. it's going to be, coming from the movie business, it's going to be the best distillery tour on the planet. It's going to be very, very, like, you know, I like to stick in the Victorian area from, mm-hmm. you know, the stories on my bottles. So yeah. I'm going to be very late 1800s kind of, you know, velvet drapes, you know, very, yeah, it's going to be very theatrical. Very cool. So, but, you know, being in a, in a building that's going to be torn down, that's mm-hmm. built literally as a prison. Yeah. We didn't have too much trouble. Okay. Yeah. The walls here look very, very yeah, sturdy. Even <laughs> the government, the TTB has to approve what locks you use, right? They have a list of approved sure. locks for doors and stuff okay. because it's all about lock, locking up their tax revenue. Mm. But with us, it was like we're in a prison. So yeah, they didn't. You want locks? They're like, yeah, you, you're like, I think you're secure enough. So <laughs> right. it wasn't as hard for us as okay. some other people because we're in a building that they don't care if we destroy anyway. Very cool. <laughs> so far, so good, though. It's not so far, so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So um, you're a one-man shop. You do all the marketing and everything, everything, but except for outside distribution. How do you promote your product? Kind of, what's your strategy right now? Do you do, you do a lot of online wait, campaigns? Wait, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to have a strategy. <laughs> wait a second. I mean, I may be a businessman, but I'm not a I'm not a businessman. <laughs> okay. Um, so how do you get the word out then? Without non-strategic, so, how, tactically, how do you get the? Well, the I mean, word the out? philosophy I went into is yeah. coming from the movie business. You got to market and network yourself. Sure. I I can network like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. But when I started this company, I, I, I said I was going to, not that I was ever dishonest in the film business, but I was going to play it straight. You know, okay. you like my product? Good. You don't like my product? No problem. You know, it's not for you, but I'm not going to schmooze and give you money under the table kind of thing and blah, blah, blah to get my yeah. product out there. So I'm just doing grassroots. You know, I make a product that, trust me, people love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, word of mouth, Facebook, people like you, you know, anything I can do for free because I'm self-funded. So, yeah. you know, there's wow. not there's not endless amounts of money. There's very mm-hmm. little money. So <laughs> my focus is just to get into the hands of the people, get in the hands of the bartenders, get people to recognize the brand. You know, brand recognition is number mm-hmm. one. Mainly what my salespeople do is not only do we sell – but we try to get our drinks on the menu. Not necessarily okay. drinks. We, 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 we create, but like, let's say we go to the Fairmont in San Francisco. Yeah. We don't just want to be in the Fairmont. We want to go, hey, what can we do to get on this menu? And then once they taste it, like, oh yeah, we're putting that on the menu. So okay. then they put, you know, you know, let's say it's called a Treasure Island drink and it mm-hmm. says Bummer and Lazarus Gin. That's the best advertising you can get is getting your drink on a menu. Okay. Where it says made with Bummer and Lazarus Gin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just grassroots, you know, internet, social media, as many magazines that can publish me for free and <laughs> sure. interviews and, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Very cool. So you, you, uh, do, you, do you find yourself going out to bars a lot then, introducing yourselves to bartenders? Uh, Not so much. I mean, yeah. I do, right. but I mainly have salespeople for okay. that. Oh, you, you do? Know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, going out to bar after bar, <laughs> night after night, after doing a full day's worth of work, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty brutal. So I kind of leave that up. I mean, I do visit my bars locally and when i'm out of town uh, visiting and promoting so i do like go to los angeles you know indiana when we launch and stuff Mm -hmm. and and you know go to bars that are key markets and stuff but you know yeah i mean it's it's a it's a it's a rough life but Uh, if you're gonna make me drink that okay fine i'll drink that i'll try it okay Okay, so let's change gears uh, quickly uh, and kind of talk about the creative process then. What what kind of goes into making your, um, I want to say mash, even though I know that's more of a bourbon term or a whiskey term, but how, really, how do you, how, how do you, 
How do you know that your uh, flavors have combined well enough to start distilling it and start putting it in a bottle? What, uh, what does that create a taste, process? Taste is everything. Yeah. It's actually not as hard as you think. At least for me, it's not that okay. hard. So what I do is I come up with just, you know, I think about what I want to taste. And then I start creating what it should be. So the first few batches of uh, gin that I did for professional, you know, I, I made and I started to pick up those citrus and floral tones. And I'm like, oh, I want to taste more of that. Okay. So I just started adding more and uh, reducing the juniper because the original batches were very junipery or normal, yep. normal levels. And it's like, you know what? There's, there's juniper out there. I yeah. want, I want to taste something that's less juniper, more floral, more citrusy, more of a rounded botanical mm-hmm. kind of thing. So was it kind of a taste test of one? Did you bring in friends, other oh, people, yeah. outside oh, people yeah. to help you? That, okay. That's, that's very key is I to have <laughs> other people taste it because, sure. uh, you know, what your palate tastes, other people don't. Right. Okay. It's like you could have 6,000 bottles of a gin that only you like. Yeah, exactly. Right? kind of want to avoid oh, they're, that. They're, we've made stuff like that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yeah. 6,000 bottles, no, but like, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, like they're, no one's drinking this. <laughs> Very cool. And kind of, kind of along the lines of your creative process, then your bottles, how did you come up with that? So when I started, I was thinking of designing my own bottles because, you know, seeing as I've been making liquor for most of my life, whether it be wine or spirits. You were imagining what your still was going to look like. I would imagine you had uh, thoughts about this is exactly what the bottle is going to look like. Not, not exactly. But I did start and after about 10 minutes into it, I'm like, yeah, this is not something. I'm not an artist. I mean, I, I love graphic design and I can do it for other people. Like I can come up with ideas, but for myself, it's like, you know, it just it just was not something I could come up with that I liked. So I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted to call the products, and I knew what stories they were based on. Yeah. And so um, I met a guy who came to one of my events named Anthony Austin, and he had uh, Austin Design Group over in Emeryville. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a perfect marriage of uh, – I mean, the guys that he hires and himself yeah. – absolutely the best designers in the world okay all our labels are actually hand illustrated drawn by pencil and paper really they weren't done on a computer till final assembly for printing the original arts like 18 by 24 i mean super detailed drawings Mm -hmm. beautiful art i couldn't have asked for a better designer i mean they're absolutely the best labels in the world really that's very cool and so did it kind of it must have helped having a pre-existing relationship with a designer you can kind of talk to them let them know what you want yeah and have a very open dialogue yes to make it very clear this is this is what my product is, and then they. Unfortunately, kind of craft that for you. I go for more organic, so mm-hmm. I don't really have a deadline. Like, hey, we need it yeah. by then, because okay. trust me, when you let them run amok and just do what they do, yeah. it's it's spectacular. So I'm coming out with a rum agricole at the beginning of this next oh, year. Oh, you are okay, and it's called Barbary Coast Rum Agricole. Yeah, and the art is a full pictorial scene from the Barbary Coast back in the day. Uh, original art. I mean, so they just made it up. I mean, the buildings are accurate and that kind of thing because mm-hmm. they do do their research. But as far as the uh, people and stuff, that's just all fictional. But all sure. the art for me is original to me. And it's just unbelievable how, how detailed and how many hours and hours they put into it. Yeah, that's amazing. And what you called it a rum agricole. How is that different than – is that different from other rums, like the more mainstream rums that people might have had? What, what, yeah, so what are the characters rum agricole is spelled R-H-U-M. Okay. And agricole being, you know, a word in uh, in uh, Spanish, ag- Spanish agriculture. Okay. So agricole rum is more of a dry style of rum, yeah. normally from the French West Indies. And it's 
It's made from the entire juice of the sugar cane. So normal okay. rum is made from molasses, which mm-hmm. is a byproduct of refining sugar cane into white table sugar. Yep. Okay. And so back in the 1800s, when France developed beet sugar, it drove the price of sugar cane in the French West Indies to pretty much nothing. So they started making mm-hmm. rum from the entire juice of the sugar cane. So if oh. you know wine, terroir has a lot to do with rum agricole. What's in the soil? What's in mm-hmm. the environment? So when you smell a rum agricole, you'll smell artichokes or yeah. some kind of vegetal notes. It's 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 quite. It's like a higher quality mm-hmm. version of rum. So your yeah, so your sugar base isn't the byproduct of anything. It's not at the end no. of any production. It's, no, it's one hundred percent sugar. It cane. starts off for juice. you and yes. as juice, and you're the first person to use it, that product. And yes, yeah, that's what they'll taste in the bottle. That's very exciting. How do you? How did you find your suppliers? Then you know, how did you? How did you find your brandy people to help you with your gin and your? Oh God, base just luck. Your, yeah, <laughs> you, you call around, you get okay. a feel. You know, it's just like anything. Yeah. You just you, you you gather knowledge and you ask around, and you know, eventually people contact you based on luck. You know, I think the agricultural rum guy contacted me, or the guy who provides my sugar cane. Okay, and yeah, I mean. A lot of it's just, you know, poking around until sure. you see uh, what bites. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're up and running and you've been uh, distilling professionally and legally, <laughs> you know, you've had all your permits for about three years now. Was that right? I think it's yeah. in 2011. Yeah. What kind of looking back, what do you kind of wish someone had told you as you were starting that you know now? You know, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? I mean, I hate to sound arrogant, but not mm-hmm. really much. I mean, okay. I've been distilling and making wine for a long time. Yeah. I, even when I was 17, I was actually going to what was then the BATF courses up in up in uh, Inglenook Winery. Okay. And, you know, so I had a feel even at 17, you know. I mean, I wanted to start a winery back then. And, you know, yeah. I saw what all the laws were, like especially Napa. They're even stricter, mm-hmm. you know, because city laws come into effect. So in Napa, you know, your winery has to be inset from the road 100 feet you know, there has to be physical lines on the ground that separate bonded space. And okay. I mean, obviously, this was 91, so yep. maybe the laws have changed for the wineries. But yeah, so I had, a, I had a pretty good idea. I mean, the the main thing that really throws you for a loop is the whole camaraderie of the alcohol business. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, no matter how big it is, it is a it is a big one big community. Okay. That's what I hear from a lot of people, that they can reach out to other distillers or yeah. other winemakers and really get an honest response. No one's like, no, it's trade secret. Or yeah. That's, yeah. So, yeah. So you found that to be the case. Yeah. Also. I mean, and like bartenders, you go into a city, all the bartenders know each other. They all okay. hang out after work. So it's a big, yeah. it's one big environment, but it's, you know, and that's with the, the service side. When it comes mm-hmm. to the distribution of sales sides, it can be pretty sticky. You know, it's the oh, alcohol okay. liquor business. You know, it used to be run by the mob. So. <laughs> right. But there's not much I didn't know when I got into this, okay. you know. I mean, uh, well, there's a lot I didn't know, sure. but nothing that threw me for a loop. I mean, a lot of it was just, you know, just getting the feel for it. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about this my whole life, so you know, I pretty much had an idea of what it was. So just talking about the kind of camaraderie that's built around the uh, the, the liquor industry, bar, every bartender knowing each other. Has owning your own distillery? kind of changed your relationship or changed the way you go out to bars and restaurants or liquor stores? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. Definitely. How has that? What, what is that? I'm always fascinated um, to find out. I tip out. a lot more. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I didn't tip before, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I understand what, you know, I mean, I, I did waitering in, in college and stuff, so mm-hmm. I've always known what it, you know, what hell life it is to be a waiter yeah. or a bartender, you know, because people, people are animals. But 
I tip a lot more now, realizing the importance of those people. Right on. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just nice going in and knowing all the owners and mm-hmm. all the people who work there and see what how much hard work they actually do put into creating an experience for you. Yeah. And do you ever look behind the bar right now and... You know, can can you go out to a bar and just relax, or do you kind of look behind the bar and look at all the labels that they have on display, and whether you see yours or not out there? Is have... well, that is relaxing to me. That's why okay. I got in the alcohol business. I I, I just always was fascinated by alcohol, so yeah. I'm always looking, and that's part of the experience okay. for me. That's that's part of relaxing. Is just you know, I love seeing what people can do with it. It's creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's creativity. You can drink. Yeah, <laughs> like you can take one. You can take my gin. And make 1,500 different cocktails, and they're all unique. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just fascinating to me that there, there's so much explosion right now of the craft cocktail movement. You sure. Know? So, uh, I guess my final question then, what is one recipe, one cocktail that people should use your alcohol for? What, if, if, Can I give you three? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you make three products? Uh, give me three. Uh, totally. Oh, actually, we're coming out with a great base vodka, too. Oh, but, my gosh. Um, okay. I don't have any recipes for the rum agricole yet. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we usually get bartenders to make custom drinks for those once once we come out with the product. The product's not out yet. Gotcha. But the one drink I really recommend yeah. is a true martini. Okay. The whole world's actually been brainwashed by James Bond. Don't get me wrong. I love James <laughs> Bond. But that a martini has to be dry. Yeah. Because most people are using Cinzano or Martini Rossi. Mm-hmm. But now that, even though these vermouths have been around for hundreds of years, but now that Dolan's Dry Vermouth and mm. Antica and some of the really good ones are now in the public eye and yeah, easy to get Yeah, there's actually craft vermouths coming out or very yes, much smaller produ- pro- production vermouths being created. But now that there's good vermouth, yeah. you can make a really good martini. Okay. So cold is cloying. So when you mm. make an, a cocktail with ice, some of that water comes off the ice and helps mellow out the alcohol, open up the flavors, like when you add a couple of drops of of water to scotch or whiskey mm-hmm. to open it up. But the cold is cloying. So if I take a shot okay. of my Bummer Lazarus gin on ice and a shot of my Bummer and Lazarus with no ice, no cold, the one on ice will cut the flavor by 80%. Okay. So cold is cloying. So the martini I recommend is a true martini, two and a quarter ounces Bummer and Lazarus gin, All right. three quarters ounce Dolan's dry vermouth, one piece of ice, hmm. shake it, and then let it sit for a minute or two in the cup, in the glass, f- to come up to room temperature. It'll oh, be the best martini okay. you ever had. Oh, wow. Literally. Oh, interesting. So don't fill the shaker up with ice. No. Uh, yeah. Hardly Just any ice for hardly. a martini. Regular yeah. cocktails, yes. You want yeah, some of the yeah. cold. But a martini, Oh, interesting. that's if you like the taste of alcohol. Mm-hmm. I don't mean <laughs> ethanol, but I mean the right. flavors of a gin, the flavors of a vermouth. And then if you want to make really interesting absinthe drink, most people think absinthe has to be drunk in the ritual. Mm-hmm. With it's a not, sugar cube with on a sugar cube. You don't have thing. to do any of that. Okay. The way we drink ours is in a good quality absinthe. It's one shot water, one shot absinthe, no ice. Oh. Just stir it and you're good to go. Whoa. The ritual with the sugar and the cold as you know, from the ice and the water, as I said, is cold as cloying, mm-hmm. was really for absinthe back in the day that was cheap, You know, that had very bitter flavors. Okay. Good absinthe, just water and absinthe. But you can do what's known as a failed resuscitation drink uh, created by Mike Goldman, of, <laughs> formerly of George's Restaurant SF. It's okay. three-quarters ounce Emperor Norton absinthe, mm-hmm. absinthe, three-quarters ounce lemon juice, three-quarters an ounce Lillet, which is a fortified wine, yeah. three-quarters ounce Combier, which is an orange liqueur. Whoa. Stir it because it's all alcohol mm-hmm. and garnish with a Luyardo cherry. It's phenomenal. Oh, my gosh. That sounds really good. It's really good. Okay, I'm going to go have one of those right now, I think. (laughs) Carter, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And where can people find you right now? Where are you distributed at? So 
I'm actually in uh, over 650 locations across the U.S. Yeah. We're in 10 states, 175 locations just in San Francisco, about 175 locations just in Los Angeles. But right now we're in about 10 states. Oregon and Tennessee we just added, so they're not quite there yet, but the paperwork's done. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right, Carter. Thank you so much for your time. Thank today. you. 